rings true. God's an astronaut. Oz is over the rainbow. The Midian's where the monsters live. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Matt. Hello, Ben. How is it going? Oh, not too bad. You know, just living that quarantine life. This is week three now for me. I was talking to my girlfriend today, and it's like we're it's been a month more or less since we were like, hmm, maybe this is going to be an issue. Maybe uh, (laughs) I should buy an extra can of beans. Uh, on my way home to the store. <laughs> toilet paper. Oh, but God. Yeah. If only we could buy toilet paper. <laughs> it's been a trip, but it's perfect conditions for watching 30-year-old movies. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You want to talk to our listeners about the podcast? Back to the Movies is a film podcast where Ben and I go back to a certain year of cinema to watch all of the movies that made that year. And the year that we're going back to on this inaugural season is 1990, which happens to be 30 years ago from the year we're doing this, 2020, and also happens to be Ben and I's birth year. We were both born in the spring of 1990. Ben celebrated his 30th a month ago, and I celebrated my 30th a few days ago. So Yeah, happy birthday. Yeah, thank you. We are sort of... Reliving this year from the perspective of adults as we were infants, and we've done, I don't know, like seven movies so far? Yep, this should be episode eight. Yeah, so we're still in the spring of 1990, and our movie this week is a crazy one. Uh, Ben, why don't you tell the listeners what the movie is? Let me set the scene. It's (laughs) February 1990. A cool night. A crisp February night. <laughs> Still spring. Maybe you get a little bit of uh, uh, snow or even some early rain. And uh, you're going to see a movie. You've heard about uh, a little a man named Clive Barker. The future of horror, or so you've been told. He's already made one movie. Hellraiser. Tremendous hit. Sensation. Yeah. Amazing film. And so you're going to see his second at bat, his sophomore effort. A film called... Nightbreed. Nightbreed. I am so excited to talk about this movie because I kind of love this movie. Wow, okay, okay. It's not a good movie. It has so, so many flaws, and we could spend the next <laughs> 90 minutes cataloging each and every one of them. We'll just do the cinema sins of <laughs> the six-hour cinema sins. Literally, the podcast would explode in dings. Like... <laughs> Everything about this movie is amateurish and flimsy and shouldn't work, but it just it just does for me. The movie is Nightbreed. Movie is Nightbreed. Oof, Nightbreed. So yeah, Ben, what's your history with the movie? Why did you pick it? So I came to this one relatively recently. Uh, like I said on recent episodes, I can't remember if it was, I guess it was the Misery episode. I'm a big horror fan, always have been. Um, and when I saw Hellraiser in high school, that was a that was a, a watershed one for me because Hellraiser is a much more interesting and challenging horror film than your average horror pablum, if you will. You know, aesthetically and thematically, um, there's a lot of complex and 
frightening subtext to that film that as a teenager living in, you know, backwater Vermont with a Christian family was like really eye-opening to me. So that sold me on Clyde Barker, even though the rest of the Hellraiser films go from kind of like meh to, oh God, no, I was still in on him. And a few years ago, he released a director's cut of Nightbreed. And right around that time, there was a big swell of coverage for the movie. It had a cult following already, and this was seen as a pretty big deal. And that was the first time I saw it. And the, the first time, I have to say, I was I was a little off-put. I mean, kind of the same way I was with Hellraiser, where the movie is so strange and unlike anything else that I didn't really know what to make of it. But it's one of those movies that really lingered in my imagination and I'd find myself thinking about it at odd times or quoting it to people without even realizing that I was doing so. And so, again, when we were going through the list of 1990 movies, just like with Blue Steel, when I saw that one on the list, I was like, we got to cover it just so I could have somebody else to talk to about <laughs> this movie. You've brought me to the median of your dreams. <laughs> so there's a lot of different cuts of this movie, and it's a little confusing and intimidating. It's sort of Blade Runner-y where you're like, which version do I watch? Do I watch the theatrical cut? Do I watch the director's cut? Then there's another cut. What What's the deal with all these cuts? Yeah, we should definitely specify. We both watched the, the most recent cut, the director's cut, the one that was put out um, by Scream Factory on Blu-ray recently. And it's two hours. Two hours long. That's the easiest way to tell these cuts apart is they're all actually quite different in length. The theatrical cut, which was taken away from Barker and taken away from his editor, uh, was chopped down to an hour and 40 minutes, uh, is by all accounts not worth seeking out. Adds some pretty dull, mundane stuff to a movie that is neither of those things most of the time. And then there's also something called the Cabal Cut, which was the first attempt at sort of a fan-made director's cut where they tried to replicate Barker's original cut before the studio took it away from him. That one's two hours, 20 minutes long. Uh, but that one's pretty hard to track down, and it's not even the preferred cut by Barker. It's got like unfinished footage, right? Like, like, right. Like stuff from VHS transfers. Yeah. No, thanks. So the director's cut, I think is the way to go. It certainly gives you the complete experience. And like I said, you know, Barker who wrote the novella, wrote the screenplay and directed the movie says, this is the cut to watch. So that's the way to go. Totally. Um, so I watched this movie last night (laughs) on Amazon prime and <laughs> okay we gotta mention that up front yeah uh and i had a rough time with it just because it's so freaking crazy man like it's <laughs> it was sort of like a weird companion piece to blue steel like i know are we gonna run back the same episode we kind of have to because it's very similar in a lot of ways but for totally different reasons it's almost at the other end of the spectrum of like movies that Nat responds to semi negatively, but still appreciates. Cause listen, I really did appreciate a lot of the stuff in this movie. And I, it did send me into a weird dream state sort of in the same way that blue steel did. But again, the pieces just did not come together for me. And I don't want to be the guy that's just always like the pieces didn't come together for me. But I do think that these two movies next to each other are a weird part of my brain that just doesn't fully respond to them. But I will say that my brain responded more to this movie. Just by the fact that there's so much cool, inventive, crazy stuff going on in it. And 
there's always something new happening. There's always something weird happening and you don't even know what's going to happen next. And the gore and the makeup is on a level that is unparalleled and you gotta love that it's cheesy but it's so fun i would say comparing those two films is interesting because in a lot of ways nightbreed's weaknesses are blue steel's strengths blue steel is an immaculately shot movie yeah blue steel is so slick and nightbreed looks like i shot it with my buddies in high school barker is not a great visual i mean he, he conjures up great imagery but the mechanics like the 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 cinematic language, the film language, is not his primary language. It's rough around the edges. It's unsharpened. I don't want to call it dull, but it's not sharp. No, it's definitely, you can tell it's 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 a filmmaker who hasn't been trained, who is doing an early film. Although, interestingly, I feel like Hellraiser is a much more coherent film visually than this one is. Yeah, Hellraiser was way more slick. And maybe that's just the fact that it just had to stay in a house and all the monster areas were just sort of black voids whereas here there's crypts there's forests there's cemeteries there's all sorts of crazy locations in this movie and there's action which barker is not good at portraying but we'll get into that when we get to the third act of this movie which is crazy yeah one other thing i wanted to say in my initial thoughts is like you know, Scorsese had that whole brouhaha recently where he called Marvel movies theme parks and everyone was trying to define what the hell that meant and what it meant for movies. And I I felt like this movie was kind of a theme park, but in the best way possible. I really enjoyed walking through this movie and seeing what it had to offer, but like I wasn't emotionally connecting to it in any way, but it really felt like I was walking through like a haunted house and I was like, oh, what's going to be behind this door? Oh, cool. That's a great analogy because if you love haunted houses for the admittedly tacky, but but still sort of endearing earnestness of them, this is will be right up your alley. Yeah, exactly. So what about you, Ben? What's your take on the movie? Well, I wanted to, uh, I had one more point I want to make of the Blue Steel comparison, which is that the other strength that Blue Steel has that is a weakness in this film is the performances. Blue Steel has some really incredible performances, particularly from Jamie Lee Curtis and Craig Schiffer in this movie and pretty much the entire cast are drowning in this material. Yeah. But what this movie has that Blue Steel does not is a mythology, is a world that I just want to like read about and learn about and live in because it's so crazy and so fascinating. I, I don't know how fascinated I was by the world in this movie, but I was I was also like having a fever dream when I watched it. So I might have missed a lot of whatever the hell's going on. I know it's based on a book and maybe the book delves deeper into it, but I was just kind of like what the fuck is going on, man? <laughs> Let's get right into that because it's a good place to start. I know last week I said I was going to try and avoid all like the book report stuff, but in this movie you kind of can't because it's most of the most interesting things about the movie. And the first person to talk about is Barker, is Clive Barker, um, and the book and the novella that he wrote that was called Cabal that this movie is based off of. Barker's this really, really interesting figure, uh, definitely a prominent British horror writer. He was seen at, at this time as being the, you know, the second coming of 
the horror genre of elevating it in a way that hadn't been done just when it was seeing a resurgence. Thanks to people like Stephen King, Stephen King wrote uh, the jacket quote for Barker's first book. And it might be the single best jacket quote of all time. He wrote, I have seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. Just imagine picking up someone's first book and the most prolific author of a genre anointing this person as his successor. That quote's so good they used it in the marketing for Hellraiser when the movie came out. Like they 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 rode that for a long time. But yeah, so that's where Barker's coming from. He's an author and his calling card is deeply psychological and disturbingly sexual horror. Have you read any of his books? Just bits and pieces. Interestingly, I read um oh God, I can't remember the name it's called. It's called like the Underdwellers. It's the story that Midnight Meat Train is based off of. If you've ever seen that movie. With uh, Vinnie Jones and um, uh, Bradley Cooper. Terrible movie. Really bad. (laughs) So is his writing style, like, comparable to Stephen King? Is it more literary? Like, what's the deal with him? It's more figurative. It's more metaphorical. It's more dreamlike. Things are often impressionistic instead of specific. I mean, a great example is that, like, in the book, in the novella Cabal, the monsters aren't described. They're given like a brief passage about basically how Boone feels when he meets them, but they aren't given a lot of detail. They don't say she was a porcupine (laughs) with no nose. He Uh, was grotesquely fat and had eels coming out of his stomach. Yeah, they don't go that far. Okay. So because he is an author first, Barker's great strengths are as a writer. And a lot of that stuff translates directly into this movie. I'm sure you would not be surprised to hear, given that he adapted his book and directed the movie, that this is very faithful to the plot of the story. Yeah, I read the plot of the book on Wikipedia, and I was like, this is a pretty good movie summary, too. (laughs) I mean, it's almost like beat for beat. And the stuff that works, I think, is a lot of the literary stuff. This movie has some incredible dialogue, some great, great lines of dialogue that just, like, ring in your ears I love, I mean, the famous quote, the introduction to Midian that the tentacle monster guy says, uh, (laughs) everything is true. God's an astronaut. Oz is over the rainbow. Midian is where the monsters live. Such a good quote. I had some some thoughts about some of the dialogue in this movie, but we can. (laughs) No, lay it on me. What do you got? What do you got? Well, I was just thinking about the, there's like five lines in this that are really bad. And it was when they do the cliche sayings like when peliquin is like y'all come back now you hear <laughs> there are I was some, like, yeah. oh. and then the tentacle guy says there goes the neighborhood <laughs> i was like cringing on par with dark knight when the cops say have a nice trip see you next fall <laughs> when they arrest everybody definitely that wheelhouse oh. although we can talk about whether or not the camp is intentional In- intentional camp yeah i I was kind of feeling that a little bit, yeah. that it is intentional, but you're, you're just watching it and you're like, ooh. <laughs> uh, but I, the, the Oz line is cool. There were a couple others that really just, that just, I, I wish I could, I should have written more of them down, but that just like, when I heard them, I was like, oh, that's a good line of dialogue. That's such a, a great way of expressing that idea. So there's a lot of influences in the subtext of the writing, right? Right. That was the other thing I'd say that he benefits from being a writer first is that the mythology that he creates, this movie, you know, just to put it in the broadest sense, is about a society of monsters. 
that live underground, that live in the shadows. And this world that he makes is very dense. It's full of allusions to mythology and to religion and to history. And all that stuff is really interesting. And the movie does not call attention to any of it because, you know, as a writer, he knows it's all about subtext and metaphor. Yeah. My favorite example is the choice to name the city of monsters Midian. Uh, I mean, mean, you see my show notes, but are you familiar with like Midian in the Bible? No, I am not. It's a real place, but it's place in the Bibles and in Exodus in the story of Moses. Midian is where Moses goes into exile after he murders an Egyptian before he returns to free the Israelites. He spends a long time there. It's where he gets married. It is his refuge. I remember that scene in The Prince of Egypt. Right. The the Uh. Danny Glover (laughs) singing the Tapestry of Life song. Yeah. That's Midian. Yeah. Ben, you have way more Bible education than I do, so we'll just let everyone know. Ben grew up in a religious household, is that right? <laughs> I did, I did, yeah. Went to church every Sunday. Okay, yeah, so school me, baby. Well, so the other thing that's interesting about Midian, and you hear these later references to it quoted in the movie when the priest is driving to the graveyard with the cops and the and the mob to, to, to root out the monsters, is that Midian later became an enemy of Israel. And the passages about Midian have been highlighted by sort of far-right biblical commentators as being condemnations against racial mixing, against miscegenation. So that also, I think, is part of the subtext that Barker is playing in, because I think we should skip right ahead to the queer reading of this movie. When did that gain traction? Is it simply because Barker identifies as homosexual and so we're bringing a lot of that into the movie? Because you could also just read it as like a misfits being persecuted, devils being persecuted. There's like religious elements to it, but there is a very distinct queer following of this movie. Well, Barker is undoubtedly a recognizable figure in queer cinema because he is out. And because he was out relatively early, I was trying to find an exact date. Well, all I could, the best I could find was somewhere in the early 90s. So it's probable that he wasn't out when this film was released. Um, but he certainly self-affirmed as gay before that. He said in interviews that he knew he was gay when he was 18 or 19 years old. So he, all of his work is from that perspective. And when you get a movie as strangely personal as this is, that is impossible to distinguish from it. I mean... Everything from the way it frames its hero. An outsider, somebody who's never going to fit in with the world that they're in. Absolutely. And I wasn't even talking narratively, but that's there too. I was talking about visually. I mean, the movie like makes him the subject of the film's gaze much more than it makes Laurie his, his, his girlfriend. That is very true, yeah. The design, the costume designs are all very much representative of the styles of, of gay culture at the time. Um, and the narrative is so clearly about, you know, repressed societies, about societies that are demonized, and about discovering truths about yourself that frighten you, but then open you up to an entirely new world of possibility. I will say it's pretty funny to me that there's this whole world that Clive Barker's created of misfits and outcasts who are these amazingly designed monsters with crazy faces and crazy, horrible vibes. 
But then the bad guys that end up killing them are the same far right assholes that would actually be trying to hurt gay people in reality. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they are persecuted by cops, by religious figures, um, and then by people representing like mainstream society, I guess, if you want to read Deckard as that. It's just it's funny to me that like they didn't create some jerk demons that would persecute them he's like no nah, it's just the cops it's the it's same the cops. cops we can definitely highlight more of this stuff as we are going through the movie but i think we should probably just get started and talk about the stuff that works and the stuff that doesn't because there's a lot of both yeah we open the movie with just a lot of character business not a lot of story details we meet boone Laurie and Deckard, who are the three main characters of the film. Boone's our hero, Aaron Boone, played by Craig Sheffer. He is one of the things about this movie that does not work for me very much. He has like a Hellboy face without any makeup. It's very broad face. Yeah, there's really some Ron Perlman face. in there. I'm so, no offense. Uh, it's just something about him maybe like just anticipating him changing into a monster. I was like, when is he? He's going to be such a great monster, but his normal face is terrible. His monster form is like barely monstrous. I feel like they missed an opportunity there. Yeah. They, well, yeah, they had to like keep him kind of human looking, I guess. So he, they couldn't turn him into the eel guy or the uh, <laughs> porcupine lady. That, that would have be been great. Weird. But yeah, he just doesn't have what you need in a leading man. I think it's just not there. He feels kind of soft to me. You know, he's playing... Boone is a character who is, you know, been suffering with mental issues his entire life, who is persuaded within the first 10 minutes of this movie that he has committed a series of murders <laughs> without realizing it, and then goes... And then is driven mad by hallucinogens, and I never, ever felt any danger from... Yeah. ...from Shepard. Yeah, and I, I think that also has to do with just the structure of the movie and just how it's kind of jumping from scene to scene without a lot of gravity. I don't know. I, I It was pretty loose at the beginning. It's very loose at the beginning. Until we really get to Midian, the movie kind of struggles to find its footing. Yeah. I will say that he, uh, you know, he's very cut. He's a very handsome man. And he walks around in his underwear a lot. I mean, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Like, he, he almost exists to be an object for the the lens to focus on definitely yeah and then we've got his girlfriend Lori, who's played by an actress named ann bobby who i didn't recognize you know she hasn't actually done that much other work but i started reading about her career and she's got two fascinating credits that we have to talk about before we do i just like thumbs up thumbs down how's she in the movie again fine presence is a little whack i think she's way better than he was just because she had like more distinct scenes like, she's got to go find him. She I mean, meets... she's honestly the protagonist of the second act of the film. Yeah, she's got more stuff going on with her character than he does, surprisingly, considering he goes through an interdimensional transformation or whatever. But she kind of comes out on top in terms of the two of them. Yeah, I, I generally like her. Uh, I think she's a little non-existent in the same way that Sheffer is. I think she's really bad in their final scene. Oh, my God. Which is a tough way to end the film and was, you know, something that Barker added back in. It's it's that's the revised ending. The original ending doesn't have any of that. Yeah. So that's all the more disappointing. Uh, but, you know, she she she's fine and she gets out of the way when she needs to, when the much more interesting stuff happens, which is, again, when we get to Midian. 
Let's just say if they had cast Julia Roberts, we would have had an Academy <laughs> Award winning performance on our hands. Uh, or Kathy Bates, I'll do that. She's got a great singing voice. And let me transition now into her two credits. First off, she's the voice of Tenenbaum in the Bioshock games. She's not like a big voice actor, but that's a, like a pretty big character in a great series of games. I was fascinated to hear that. You know, voiceover acting, it's good stuff. I don't even remember who Tenenbaum is. I haven't played that game in She's forever. like the mother of the little sisters, basically, the one who created them and the one who guides you through how to care for them. Is she German? Yes. Okay. She I has a German her. accent. Yeah, great. Love and it. And then her other credit, and this might explain her lack of other credits, she was the top billed actor in a little TV show called Cop Rock. Mm. Now, have you ever heard of this show? I have heard of this. This show is kind of legendary. It is. It is legendary. It's one of the worst TV shows ever made. Yeah. It was also 1990, right? Also 1990. Yeah. She was having a big year. Maybe we'll do a special episode of Cop Rock. <laughs> oh, God, no. But I mean, if you haven't heard of this show, listeners, you should like look up clips of it because it's incredible. The idea was you had Stephen Bochco, who was Mr. TV in 1990. He had developed and produced Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, Doogie Howser, NYPD Blue. Like, he was top of the ladder when it came to television and particularly cop dramas. And he pitched to the network a procedural cop show that was also a musical. Oh, God. So it takes itself completely seriously. It's completely straight-faced, except they just continually break into song <laughs> while they're investigating the crime of the week. Unsurprisingly, it was a disaster it is a terrible terrible show uh number eight on tv guides list of the 50 worst tv shows of all time i thought that was a good number for it <laughs> and uh destroyed you know his career and uh, seemingly destroyed and bobby's career as well because she basically has no credits after that she just couldn't handle it after the one-two punch of doing nightbreed and cop rock in the same year you know i hadn't been thinking about nightbreed being part of the problem but it might have been this movie was not a success so then there's Deckard, David Cronenberg. Boone's psychiatrist. David Cronenberg was kind of weird. Was he like buddies with Clive Barker and they were just hanging out one day and it was like, you should play Deckard. Uh, when I wrote it, I imagined you as Deckard and then they just put him in there. I don't know. I don't know how close they were, but I definitely think it's, it's it's clearly an homage to Cronenberg's work as a filmmaker. Yeah. And he does have kind of an eerie presence. He's so soft-spoken and his face is so drawn He's creepy to look at. He reminded me so much of Matthew Modine and Stranger Things. Maybe just because they look kind of similar. But they do look very I similar. Just, I was vibing on that. But yeah, it's always interesting when movies grab directors for roles. I don't mm. know how you feel about that. But I find it a little distracting sometimes. Unless the director is like an amazing actor. And I'm not talking about when directors are in their own movies. Because I think that's a little different. But when... They clearly grab somebody to be in something, and it's just like they're not on the same level as actors sometimes. I'll tell you the one that I think works, and I'll tell you why I think it works. Francois Truffaut in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it works because he's speaking French the whole time. Oh, there you go. I'll tell you one that I think really works, and this might be a little controversial nowadays, but when David Lynch was on Louie and played the expert at how to be on a late night show... That was an amazing performance. <laughs> well, David Lynch is actually quite a good performer. Uh, did you know he reads? Uh, he used to read weather forecasts? Oh, wow. Yeah, you could like log onto a website and listen to him read the weather for a very specific part of the country. Oh, I love it. I 
gonna do that. So yeah, he's he's again, he's not an intimidating villain. He, his biggest strength is that he's weird. He's and weird. And him and um, Boone have a relationship that I didn't really buy. I didn't understand like the control aspect, or I, I didn't feel it very much. Like they didn't feel connected at all. Ironically, the movie almost moves too quickly here because we don't get any scenes establishing their relationship prior to Deckard disclosing Boone's supposed repressed murder side. Before he does, we get the button face attack. Button face. Which uh, button face is a really interesting part of this movie because it's ultimately sort of the movie's downfall in Barker's eyes is that this character exists and becomes the focus of the marketing. But this first attack scene is also pretty effective, and the button face mask, in my opinion, is terrifying. I don't like to look at it. I just don't get why, in a movie with these amazing monsters, is the bad guy some dude that wears a sack on his face? That's a great question. I can understand going to see this in 1990 and seeing Hellraiser and being like, okay, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be a monster movie where we go to extra dimensional travel to another land and it's going to be nuts. And then there's some asshole serial killer murdering people with a stupid mask on his face. Is Am I crazy? I, I even put here that I wanted to sort of pick your brain about what you think Deckard represents, you know, where he fits in the film thematically or allegorically. Because he is definitely sort of strange. I think he's the kind of, he's representing people that take advantage of misunderstood people and scapegoat them. Like Mm -hmm. he wants to kill people and be a crazy serial killer stabbing people. And then he blames Boone for it and ultimately helps the police go and kill everybody essentially to cover up his own crimes. Right. Sometimes the movie seems to be playing that 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 way, but it's also like a compulsion. And he seems to hate Midian as much as anything. And when they get there, he almost immediately puts on his mask and reveals his true self. So there's definitely a reading of him that says, you know, he is akin to the monsters, but his repression of his monster side has turned him even has turned him evil. You know, he's like, you know, someone who has repressed their homosexuality and it now comes out as virulent homophobia. Right. But he never he never goes super crazy on the monsters. Like he's sort of just pulling the strings in the background and like trying to scapegoat people. He's got a couple of scenes like when he first learns that Boone may have survived, uh, when he interrogates the uh, shopkeep who wishes he could join the monsters in Midian, where he sort of hints at having some kind of you know, non-rational hatred for Midian and for the monsters. But then other times he's absolutely a manipulator and, you know, a mastermind. It's just a mess. <laughs> I think that's what it boils down to. It's, is, if something is challenging and difficult to categorize, does that mean it's messy? No, not at all. But I think that this particular movie is a mess. Right? <laughs> and you, dude, there's like three cuts of it. Of course it's a mess. It's been tinkered with. <laughs> It was a book like it's obviously going to have crazy shit going on under the hood. So the moral of the story is (laughs) the point of all these characters is that Deckard is a serial killer, which, you know, from the second you see him, the movie tries to play it a little coy, but, you know, he's button face. Um, But he tries to frame Boone, convinces Boone that he is having psychotic episodes and blacking out and murdering all these people. And Boone takes a bunch of hallucinogens, which he thinks are lithium and 
winds up running in front of a truck and winding up at a hospital. And this is where we get our first real introduction to where this movie is going. We meet Narciss, um, or Narciss. I'm not sure how the name is pronounced because all these monsters have names and they are never mentioned in the movie. Let's just call him Face Guy. Face Guy? Yeah. Face Guy? I like Face Guy. Yeah. Face Guy, who is <laughs> one of the most overtly campy characters in the movie but he doesn't start that way i think this scene is actually pretty creepy when he's like kind of a crazy person at the hospital right ends up cutting off his own face and becoming face guy the idea of somebody mutilating themselves is is frightening inherently and and just the idea that he's doing it to like prove that he is a monster everything about it is really unsettling this is the strongest clive barker stuff this crazy body horror where he's just not afraid to show a crazy person cut off their own face so that they can enter a, a separate world like right this is what i'm coming here for i want to see this nutty shit and the thing about this shit that is so great is that people don't do it like even horror people like shy away from this hardcore shit and it's fascinating and terrifying and interesting yeah it's super interesting and that's part of the reason I loved Hellraiser so much because of the pretty simple but ultimately weirdly, really weird mythology that they came up with. There, was, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there's like a box and there's these extra the dimensional lament configuration. Yeah, it's and you're it's very Lovecraftian, but in a different way than Cthulhu. S and M, S and M, S and M Lovecraft. That's what I'm looking for here. And in the, in these moments, this movie totally delivers because yeah. here's a dude who's cutting off his own face so that he's going to enter this world. And I love all the medical professionals running in and freaking out and being like, oh, my God, what the hell have you done? It's great. The cops show up, too. And so Boone has to book it and he runs to Midian. And then we finally get introduced to this kingdom of the monsters. This is sort of the end of the first act. Um, maybe 30 minutes into the movie. We get just like hints of it here. We get a really obvious, but still quite beautiful map painting of the cemetery. Uh, do you know who did that map painting? No. Ralph McQuarrie, concept artist for Star Wars. The guy who did all those classic Star Wars paintings before the movie was made. He's a, he's a, he's a great artist. He's got a very particular style that I wouldn't call realistic. And so he did all these map paintings of the cemetery that almost add this sort of Baroque mystique to the thing because it's so clearly not real but also has this you know elegance and this beauty to it and so boone arrives at the cemetery uh midian which also has the city midian underneath it where the monsters live although the townspeople don't know this um and while he's there he encounters a couple of monsters i wish i knew moonface's name i forgot to look that one up we don't need the names we don't need <laughs> They got, they got a guy with a head that looks like a crescent moon, and then we got a guy who looks like a vampire Twilight from Star Wars. <laughs> Wait, are you talking about the red guy? Who's yeah. a jerk? Okay. Yeah, he's my favorite monster. He looked, Yeah, he looked like Darth Maul. He looked like Darth Maul with tentacles, <laughs> with, with head tentacles. This guy is really interesting, too. His name is Oliver Parker, and he went on to be a director, primarily, instead of an actor. He gets most of the best lines of dialogue in the movie, and he's got this tremendous no, voice. No, he's the one that said, y'all come back now, you hear? Yeah, but he also got, you know, <laughs> everything is true. God's an astronaut. All right, fine. Y'all come back now. Well, and the interesting thing about him is that, yeah, he went on to be a director. He hasn't been particularly successful as a director. His first film 
interestingly enough, a Castle Rock film was is the uh, uh, Lawrence Fishburne, Kenneth Branagh Othello that I accidentally misidentified as being Kenneth Branagh's film on our Misery episode. And then he directed a couple other films, including like the sequel to Johnny English. So like he hasn't had a great career as a director, but it's just kind of interesting to see what he does. And I really like him in this movie. Like I said, he's, he's my favorite. He's one of the only monsters who feels dangerous. I think Face Guy is my favorite, just for the record. Just because he tried to, he cut off his own face. That's Cut off his own face. After he does that, he becomes like Camp City. <laughs> yeah, I like his face though. I like his, I like his design, how they make his face look fake. I thought yeah. that was really cool. You could like, like the way it moves over his muscle matter. Like if you look at the seams of the face, like it almost moves independently in a way that's like creepy. Yeah. If that guy was coming down the street towards me, I'd be way more afraid than if Darth Maul was coming. Yeah. So they tell Boone what we already know, which is that he's innocent. He's not killed anybody. He's not a monster. And uh, Darth Maul bites Darth him. Maul. Darth, Darth Maul, Darth, Darth, come back, y'all, bites him. <laughs> and Boone runs from the cemetery and he gets cornered by the cops and he gets shot. Yeah, and Cronenberg kind of makes that happen. I, I think that this is, Cronenberg shouting, he's got a gun, is like the only bit of like actually good acting he does in the movie. I think that's really effective. He walks up to him and he's like so comforting. And then the framing of it and the cut's really strong and he just whips around. He's like, he's got a gun. Yeah, and then... They immediately go back to the ground when they're like, where's the gun? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's so corny. How nobody realizes that this guy is a serial killer is beyond me. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so Boone gets resurrected. Yeah, we, we, we get a couple shots of it in the morgue, but we don't really see it fully. Yeah, he kind of just jumps out a window. We get the bulk of the second act, which is Laurie searching for Boone. Boone gets sidelined, and Laurie becomes our main character. We talked about this all, already. It's part of the reason she resonates a little bit stronger. Yeah, she's got to go find him, right? She's searching. She ends up driving up there and then meeting someone, but then we really don't see him for a long time. It's a, it's a while. It's like 20 minutes. I kept expecting them to cut to him, but... I don't think we saw him until she actually found him or maybe right before she, you know, identifies the body. She goes through a bunch of trauma. She, the body gets stolen, quote unquote. She chases it up to Midian. She stops at a bar. She makes a new friend who exists only to be killed. A lot of backstory given to that friend just to be killed. Ultimately. She's talking about her ex-husband. She's I, I was like, oh, geez, she got killed. I mean, the problem with this character, Cheryl Ann, uh, is that given when she's introduced in the movie, you know, either she is a bad guy or a victim. They spend too much time on her or not enough time on her. But I, I like the little performance. Whatever. She's fine. <laughs> it's a little messy, Ben. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, and what we learned from Cheryl Ann is that Deckard is also on the trail of Boone. Right. And that he is just one step behind and is also discovering what they are, which is the cemetery and the monsters within. There's, a, I think, actually a really interesting and effective scene where Lori's walking to the cemetery and she sees this grotesque creature on the ground. Yeah, it was basically like a little Dobby from Harry Potter, <laughs> but paler. Like four-legged Harry Dobby. Yeah. Naked, too. And uh, a woman calls to her from inside a mausoleum and you know says, bring bring her to me. Hey, let me ask you, if you're at the 
cemetery and you see that little thing are you bringing it to the lady (laughs) no no way but this scene does a couple of interesting things one it introduces another one of our main characters which is rachel who's the mother of this monster girl and it also begins to tie in something that the movie doesn't ever explicitly state but is kind of clear from the subtext of the film which is that in this universe all of the classic monsters that we think about vampires werewolves uh you know whatever else you have black lagoon fishmen they're all part of this tribes of the moon that we learn about and that these are the real versions of them here at midian oh i didn't really because pick that up you know some of them can't stay in sunlight some of them you know there's some of them can be shot some of them can be yeah okay they're not designed to look like those monsters but it's i definitely part of the subtext of it which again is part of what makes the movie they so interesting they totally stole that in the matrix reloaded do you remember 100% the wolfman that has to get shot with a silver bullet mm-hmm. and, and the ghosts they're like, oh, all the, yeah, the ghosts, they're like, oh, all these people are glitches in the Matrix. And I can see those Wachowskis stealing from Nightbreed. I would not be surprised if they were Clyde Barker fans. Oh, yeah. Not 100%. Interesting. Okay. So the, the, the monster turns out to be a little girl named Babette. And I was just, just her look and the fact that she's basically kind of like a weird vampire thing. Uh, made me wonder if she's a reference to Interview with a Vampire and the little girl who becomes a vampire in that. That book came out in the 70s, and I wouldn't be surprised if Barker had read it. That's another, you know, Anne Rice is another sort of queer fiction icon. Um, her her books definitely have that subtext and those undertones. So I, I just thought that was interesting, that connection there. The other thing that happens in this scene, the last thing, and by far the most interesting, is they show Lori their history. And this is when we learn that the Monsters of Midian were other types of creatures that used to live on the earth that call themselves the tribes of the moon and we get a truly incredible visual sequence of the human beings destroying the monsters and this is the peak barker shit for me in this movie i kind of wish this went on twice as long it's a nightmare and the visuals of it i mean the only thing i can compare it to would be like like a, a hard metal album cover yeah, it was. It's just like hellfire everywhere, and like people getting blown away and swept away. Inquisition robes and terrible torture devices and naked bodies and the streamers running across the frame. It is totally arresting to look at. Like it's 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 a truly terrifying vision that I can't believe is rattling around inside that man's imagination. <laughs> well, I was reading on his uh, Wikipedia page again. And he witnessed a circus performer fall to his death when he was like five years old. And he said that it's a hugely influential thing in his life. Yeah, imagine it would be. So there you go. If you experience insane trauma at a very young age in real life, maybe this is what the end result is. That might also explain why Midian is almost like a terror carnival. Because the sequence that follows this is Lori entering Midian to try and find Boone. And it is almost, I mean, it really is just like a merry-go-round of monsters. You know, can I talk about Midian for a second? I was not that into the design of Midian. It felt very low-budget, Xeno Warrior Princess level. <laughs> like, I had no sense of, like, how big it was, 
they call it a city. It looks like a cave network. And I know it is a cave network, but they call it a city. But uh, to me, there's like 12 people living in a cave. That's like four rooms. What's the deal with Midian? Is it is it really big? Is it just cavern after cavern? I didn't get a good sense of place. Yeah, I think this is where we start to see some of Barker's weaknesses as a director. Like I said, in the book, the monsters are not really described as sort of impressionistic. And I'm sure Midian was the same way. It's not like he would have laid out street by street the way it looked. And when it comes time for him to actually visualize it, it is kind of messy and unclear and doesn't make a lot of sense. Where do they sleep? Where do they eat? Like, what are these things? How do they live? They have children, but are they having, you know, are, are the children parented or are they created? Like, what is going on? And this is where the, the, the haunted house element comes into play. Because when she starts running through Midian it really feels like we're in a haunted house and she's just going from room to room and there's here's another thing. And it's a great scene, but it's not establishing to me that she's in a city where people live. It more just feels like a horror show. Particularly because it's like each monster is in their own little room. It's exactly like a haunted house. It's exactly like a haunted house. Um, One thing I do like about the monsters, it's kind of a double-edged sword because the monsters, as we find out, are not very monstrous. Some of them are a little bit off-putting, but even in their designs, they're not that horrifying. They're more often grotesque. But even more than that, it's like the monsters are monsters because they have deformities or diseases or engage in taboo practices like piercing and tattoo and self-mutilation. Or biting people. Which very much definitely, you know, again, speaks to this oppressed subcultures and countercultural movement kind of idea. And the coding here is plain as day i mean from the characterizations of these people to what they are wearing to the lines that they are speaking all of this stuff you know it just it screams the metaphor very loudly i think and i mean big part of that is face guy you know is is narciss who is basically like you know he's like an old queen who's like giving a tour of the place <laughs> which is surprising because he just got there like two days ago i know that again that doesn't really make a lot of sense but he knew about Midian beforehand Right. He's just a huge fan. I wanted to mention that most of these the prominently featured monsters were actors who had also played Cenobites in the Hellraiser films. Like, for instance, Lylesburg, who is the leader of Midian, is played by Doug Bradley, who's Pinhead. Oh, I was calling him... Who's the guy from Kill Bill that teaches her how to sword fight? Oh, uh, Master looked, Yoshi? Master... He looks like that guy. Yeah, I don't remember. But with... with with gills on his cheeks <laughs> they're eyeballs that's what we learned towards the end of the movie right yeah so who else is in there a bunch of them like i said all played cenobites like they, they aren't like major actors but those are their most recognizable credits and uh they've got really interesting names i don't know i like some of them i like shuna sassy that's the that's the porcupine lady and eel guy is leroy gom or gum they're just clive's band of People that are willing to sit in makeup chairs for six hours every day. <laughs> I know, it does feel like he's got his own little crew. Yeah. So Laurie takes Boone from Midian. She kind of breaks him out. There's like a whole rule where he's not allowed to do this. Right. But he leaves anyway. And they go to a hotel. And there's a lot of good little scarecrow. What's his name? Buttonface. What is it? Buttonface, because he's Button got buttons face. for eyes. I can't keep any of these straight. From now on, Scarecrow. Uh, <laughs> doesn't even look like a Scarecrow. 
He looks like Scarecrow in Dark Knight. He, he's like he's like Leatherface. Like he's got like a skin mask. No, it's like a patchwork bag head. Anyway, he <laughs> kills a bunch of people. And I like all the killing scenes. They're good horror scenes in the 80s, 90s sense. Like I love that they set the people up and it's pretty fucking terrifying when the guy's head is on the counter and stuff like that. And he's just slaughtering people. I, I really appreciated those horror scenes. And so Boone gets arrested for this hotel slaughter. The, the SWAT team rolls in. And then is when we meet our, our other major antagonist, who is the, the sheriff, the cop. Just an amazing performance from the cop. <laughs> the most <laughs> grotesque alt-right. They barely even like make note of it, but he's like part of like some kind of religious fundamentalist white supremacy movement. Did you catch that when they're like arming up and all the things in the armory say like like the sons of freedom? I gotta be honest with you, I was watching this movie as like as a fever dream. I was kind of <laughs> like, oh man, this there's a lot here, man. I I almost couldn't handle it. I, it definitely needs a rewatch at some point when I've like cooled down a bit. <laughs> but those little subtextual things that you keep mentioning, I was not picking up. I was just like, whoa, man, this is crazy. So I'll give you that reading of the movie, but the the little things I was missing. Yeah, I mean, and again, I said this up top, and we'll say it again when we get to the big blowout third act. Is that like this movie works better in concept than it does in execution. A lot of that stuff's really interesting, and it's what I love about the movie is just thinking about it and unpacking it and talking about it. But when you're watching it, it feels sloppy. I feel like this movie would have worked best for me if I had had a taped copy of it when I was like 11 years old. Like if it had been like a VHS that I would pop in and watch like 20 minutes of it and be like, what the hell? And <laughs> if it was like really crappy quality. So I thought that the actual version of the movie was better quality, even though the quality of this movie is pretty crap. Like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> if it had been one of those movies, I might've liked it more, but instead I was watching it on a flawless HD transfer, which I feel like hurts it. Yeah. Not all of the effects, like the makeup effects hold up. I would give it more of a benefit of the doubt if it w if it was like on a shittier format. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. We should quickly talk about Boone's monster design. I think it's one of the most disappointing things. I think Boone as a monster is one of the things that works least about the movie. He doesn't feel particularly monstrous and their design for him is just like a bunch of spirally cuts in his skin. Well, and they give him some more mush on his face, right? Yeah, he's got a mushy face and some fangs. They make his already mushy face even mushier. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of looks like the mask, the Jim Carrey mask a little bit to me. Like, it's just like mushy face, but not green. He looks like when, um, who's the bad guy in that? Right, that guy. Yeah, yeah that when that dude. guy puts it on, he's got the really wide face. Yeah, yeah, he looks like such a jerk. But yeah, it's just not that fun. I thought he was going to turn blue or something. I thought they were going to really transform him. But unfortunately, he just kind of keeps wearing a white t-shirt and has a weirder face. But the point of all of these scenes are, narratively, is that Deckard convinces the cops that they got to go hunt down Midian. He works really hard to convince everyone that, hey, there are monsters there. We got to go kill them. And the cops, oh, this was the other great line, is when the cop tells the preacher to go to his church and he's like get crosses and prayer books and whatever else y'all use we're going up there and we're gonna have god on our side 
See, this is the stuff that I was just kind of like glazing over a little bit. But for you, again, religious element, was it interesting? Was it funny to see like a bunch of church people go kill a bunch of monsters? Well, I just I thought that was a good line. Like, it's just a good bit of dialogue. It sounds good when you hear it. Um, I think, obviously, the religious persecution element, again, speaks to the central metaphor of the text and works in the narrative. Obviously, these would be the people who would be hunting after these monsters. We've specifically seen that this sheriff hates abnormality. He's like, if you know, they do like a Rambo, First Blood, uh, when they first capture Boone, just saying, you know, we don't like abnormal people. We don't like people with aberrant behavior. Yeah. Which, again, the metaphor right there. So then they break Boone out of jail? Yeah, uh, I like the sequence because we get some fun stuff from Narciss and Rachel. I liked it when uh, they were driving the car that had no sun. Yeah. It's all covered up. It's a cool looking car. Boone reveals himself to Laurie and we're all just building up to the big big attack. Because the third act of this movie is just like a massive set piece the assault on Midian. And it is, again, maybe not perfect execution, but I just fucking love that this movie ends with a war between cops and monsters. It's insane. And it's not, it's barely a war. It's like a massacre for most of it. It certainly starts pretty grim. It's really messed up. And it's, it's again, it's that weird disconnect of seeing the monsters from this other world just getting shot by machine guns yeah. being held by like cops. It's it's a weird thing that I feel like you wouldn't see in a movie nowadays. Like there would have to be some evil orcs that come to kill them or something. It's just so weird to see those two worlds cross. Very realistic cop world and monster world. I don't know. <laughs> would you see that in like a Maleficent movie? What about the best movie of last year, Bright? I mean, yeah, that I guess that is. But that was the whole point of Bright. Also ripping this movie off. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just a batshit crazy ending with lots of squibs getting sh- shot into people and lots of people on fire, lots of cops being characterized as in like a split second and then immediately getting their comeuppance. So much good stuff like that. We get a lot of fun monster kills. I love when Porcupine Lady just starts shooting quills at people. And they're like poisoned. It was nuts. It was totally nuts. And uh, battle's not going the monster's way until Boone lets out, these things have been planted earlier in the movie, the berserkers. Yeah, the crazies. Which are just like dudes in massive rubber suits. But I like that like they're the monsters that are truly monstrous. They're like the ogres and the giants and the things that aren't even human anymore. They're so monstrous. Do you think this might be a little crazy? And I'm not discounting any of the costume or effects work or anything like that. But do you think this movie would have benefited from coming out like 25 years later and having the potential to like CGI some of this shit, especially in terms of like the scope of the movie? Did we want to see a CGI Midian where like there's huge caverns and there's like a hundred berserkers or a thousand berserkers instead of like five dudes in rubber suits? No, because see, I don't think the problem here is the effects work or the makeup work. I actually think those things play better practically usually than they do in CGI. I think the problem is that Barker is not comfortable with that stuff cinematically. I guess so. I just feel like I I could see this working a little bit better on a little bit of a bigger scale that's 
way more possible with CGI. Like one of these Disney movies that comes out nowadays. You see like a gigantic CGI castle, but you get the scope, even though it's clearly fake. Everything in this movie is already clearly fake. I'm thinking about like the Hellraiser sequels and the Phantasm sequels and the Tremors sequels and all these movies that started to rely on CGI and the CGI doesn't look good. It doesn't make the movie better. It makes it worse because it gives them more shortcuts they can take. I guess, but again, I'm not talking about monster design. I'm talking or about even, scope Even design. like digitally extending sets and stuff like that. I don't know. I feel like this movie could have been helped by that kind of thing, but I don't know. The problem with the sequence is it can't quite live up to the concept of it. And I think that's more due to Barker's chops as an action director. All he can really do as an action director is show you a cop, show you a monster, show you what the monster does to kill the cop and show the cop dead. Like he doesn't know how to make that more exciting or exhilarating. And that's what's missing. But damn, if he's not good at showing tentacles, piercing skin and blood popping out. A lot of great skin blood gore shit <laughs> so then the big fight there's a lot of drama the the master chief guy gets killed that was pretty messed up Lylesburg. uh no what's his name hattori hanzo i don't know Lylesburg. his name is Lylesburg. it's a terrible name and then deckard gets killed in a pretty anticlimactic little ending he has a fight with boone for a bit i mean boone is a monster and deckard is a human being <laughs> yeah I wish the movie would kind of get out of its own way at this point. Barker wants to have this big climactic action sequence, but then he still is putting in like more world building and lore shit that he like can't get away from. We learn that there's a prophecy after half the monsters are dead. Oh my God. Um, and there's this, all this stuff with Baphomet, who's their God. It's just so much stuff. And it's, it's kind of fun to watch, but it's also super overwhelming. You don't know if Clive Barker's got his hands on the wheel. <laughs> It feels like it's running a little out of control, but that just makes it all the more exhilarating in some ways. (laughs) And then they burn a bunch of cops and there's a little drama where Laurie's dead for a second. Again, stolen in the Matrix sequel. I mean, that happens after the battle completely resolves. There's a few other things worth touching on. The priest character gets some interesting business here. Another character that is tough to fit into the central gay metaphor but there definitely is a way to look at it where he's sort of sublimating he's he's uh repressing perhaps an, a side of his sexuality that then gets revealed when he gets monstrified at the end but he hates that he's been revealed it's a little interesting thing but i was he got introduced a little too late in the movie he for got me to really yeah care. definitely the other thing that this ending wraps up before Lori's death is we get this moses allegory from boone he's going to be the one to lead the monsters out of midian and to a new promised land which then brings the naming convention home and yeah then we get a final scene where laurie doesn't want to live without him so she stabs herself with (laughs) one of deckard's gigantic fucking knives oh you know what we never talked about was deckard's knife spread (laughs) he's like the proto joker uh, yeah exactly he's just got a table with hundreds of knives that was great uh yeah she dies for a hot second and then he brings her back and heavy shades of matrix reloaded just putting that out there yeah well and it's also a vampire thing right he bites her right and she comes back and then there's like this kind of little heartwarming final shots of the the his new family waiting for him to be led for the promised land and the promise of multiple sequels 
that will expand the Midian saga. This movie was originally pitched as a trilogy, which the movie covers the entirety of the novella. So anything that would have come afterwards would have been original. Dude, this is why I'm saying the movie came out a few years too early. Look at Twilight. Look at There's, Twilight. I'm sorry, this is not Twilight. There's no way they were making three <laughs> Nightbreed movies. <laughs> If they had had a little CGI werewolf action? On the other hand, Underworld and Resident Evil, so maybe they would have. That's what I'm saying. It was ahead of its time. He just needed a little bit of that 2000s energy where people were willing to accept things like that. I love the trope when a character like gets a new name. I love that. It's such a powerful symbol because, you know, names are identity. You know, when, when, when you change your name, you are changing who you are. And I think the name that Boone gets is a really interesting one, Cabal. Because I think textually, Cabal has a lot of negative implications. It's like a, a horde, right? Well, it's more like a conspiracy. Like it calls to mind like, you know, like a, a, a group of nefarious individuals like acting surreptitiously to influence events and, and, and get what they desire. And the way Barker sort of co-ops that, I really tried to find a quote and I couldn't, but I would not be surprised if one existed where somebody referred to gay rights movement as being the work of some kind of cabal. And that maybe resonated with him, but it doesn't just have to be about gay rights. I mean, you could use that. I'm sure that hateful people have used that term to describe many civil rights movements in history. And so it, the way that, you know, he owns that and, and, and recontextualizes, I think is really powerful um, again, more from an academic perspective than from an actual movie perspective, because just being told his name is now Cabal, you're like, what? Uh, okay, I guess. Why does that matter? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, and do you want to talk about the music? Uh, just so I like it. Danny Elfman. It was an early Danny Elfman score. It sounds a lot like Batman. I was not a fan of the music. I thought it was too much. Well, <laughs> that's Danny Elfman. I know, but Danny Elfman does work for me in a lot of movies but this movie especially when she's driving up to Midian and there's this full-on Danny Elfman score it's like a wide shot of her car with the mountains in the background I was just like I don't need this shit right now like I don't need this much Danny Elfman going right now and it's cinematic <laughs> what about the and it's kids fun. choir kids choir is cool I like the opening and the closing and all that stuff it's just on random scenes that were just moving the plot along I did not need the full-on Danny Elfman, Pee Wee Herman experience. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think on the whole, I, I like the score. I like Elfman generally, and I think it fits the kind of over-the-top camp nature of this movie. I think the problem with those scenes, like Laurie driving up, is those scenes are too boring and mundane for the movie. And it's just like, and I'm just like, oh my God. So what is the legacy of this Nightbreed film? Well, so Nightbreed's interesting. Hellraiser was a pretty big hit. I mean, at least for what it was. And Nightbreed looked to be a safe bet at the time. Barker gets a finance to a production company called Morgan Creek, which was a pretty big company at the time. But when they saw what he was creating, this bizarre personal fantasy drama that's not even that scary i'm sure they were like what the fuck is going on there's a great quote from barker where he said the head of marketing at morgan creek never watched the movie all the way through because it disgusted and distressed him do you think they read the book they were no, just like oh hellraiser not. was a hit give him yeah. a, give him everything give him the full check 
And uh, I, I'm I'm 100% sure they had not. They had no idea what they were getting into. And so when they finally had this movie to try and sell, all they sh- tried to sell it on was the button face stuff. They just made it look like a slasher movie about a guy wearing a button mask. And when people got to the theaters, they were like, what the fuck is this movie? And so it was a huge disaster, not to mention the fact that, you know, like I said, Barker brings in his first cut around 240 and they cut an hour out of the movie without him. There's no way that that ever ends well. Well, and I heard that the editor quit out of frustration. They, they locked him out of the editing room. Yeah, his original editor was like, nah, I'm not doing this. Can I talk about the um, poster of this movie? The one that you see on like Letterboxd or whatever? The one where it's like, it's almost like the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 it's poster. Like a class photo? <laughs> it made me think, oh, is this going to be like a comedy? Like we're going to meet this fun cast of wacky monsters? Terrible poster. It's not good, no. It's very bad. Oh, God. Although it's honestly maybe more accurate to the movie than something focusing on Buttonface would have been. Totally, but it made it look like it's this motley gang of fun monsters that we're going to get to know, and they really have souls. And, like, it's, the movie's not like that at all. We don't see a lot of the, all those monsters, honestly. Yeah, they don't. I mean, it takes a while to get to Midian and to really see it. And they each only get, like, one or two moments to shine, usually, like, when they first meet Lori and then when they kill some cops in the final battle. So the movie came out. What day did it come out? February 16th, 1990. The Dumping Grounds. Yeah. I think it was originally supposed to come out earlier, and they were like, I believe that it might have been, like, an October release the year prior. Um, And it had a budget of $11 million. On its opening weekend, it grossed $3.7 million. And it went on to gross 8.9 domestically total. There was no international release. That is a terrible multiplier. Just barely over two times its opening weekend. The movie was a bomb. Damn. Damn. Sorry, Clive. But it did find a cold following after the fact. I mean, this movie had enough interest in it to warrant bringing Barker in to remaster and produce a director's cut. There are people who love this movie, and I think... It's because it does speak to people who feel isolated or removed or oppressed or repressed in a way that it's always important to have artists speaking to them. If you go on YouTube and search Nightbreed, there's so many tribute cuts and just fan-made content compared to a lot of the movies that we've been discussing already. I was really blown away by all this extra stuff that people have created and put out there over the years. I also feel like, you know, given its lack of support, its poor release and the fact that it didn't do well, it might've been one of those movies that a bunch of people like discovered and didn't really realize was real, you know, that they saw when they were young and then didn't hear about it for years and thought maybe they had made it up because it doesn't sound like a real movie. Yeah. It's so strange. Are we going to play the ranking game? So, I don't know, I've been thinking about if we should only play it for movies that are, like, within a certain range. No! I want to guess it was number 175. Guess Is that your guess, 175? Okay, no, no, I'm going to go a little higher than that, because it made some money. It made more money than Mountains of the Moon. It did make more money than Mountains of the Moon. Okay, I'm going to say, like, like 95. You think it was the, one of the top 100 movies of 1990? Oh, really? Not even top hundo? All right, 112. 112, okay. Pretty good. 112. Um, I can't, that, that actually bumps me out, that it didn't make the top 100. We are going to cover, and in my opinion, have already covered 
movies from 1990 that are way worse and way less interesting than this movie. Yeah, Pretty Woman should have had more hell monsters. <laughs> I mean, if Face Guy showed up in Pretty Woman and just like commented <laughs> on her dress or something like that, that would have been I would have been into that. He should have been the one who went into the store and said big mistake. Oh, yeah. See, they would not let him into that store. <laughs> that I buy. They'd be like, get With the his fuck exposed out of here. musculature. Get out of here right now. I'm calling the cops. So let's talk about the 90s and where this fits in with 1990. It's really, we're talking about it, where it fits in in 1990, not the 90s, because we're not talking about Ross and Rachel and Bill Clinton. We're talking about 1990, which is a turning point of decade. We're leaving the 80s, coming into the 90s. The 90s aren't really defined quite yet, so a lot of these movies are setting that up a little bit. And more in common with the 80s. Um, but, you know, we've been trying to identify themes, narratives, talking points, things that create a cohesive identity for what it meant to be a movie in 1990. Did you have anything that came to mind for this one? I mean, just more of the same stuff I was talking about with Tremors with like practical effects and how that was still a really valuable thing. A lot of the movies we've been watching have this. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Tremors, just doing, and even Red October, doing all these really cool practical effects that maybe don't age entirely well but are still just fun to watch and fun to experience that handcraftedness right it's almost like like the last years of black and white movies or like silent movies it's like they've finally gotten really good at doing it but then it just dies i'll say a couple things i we talked about blue steel last time i started talking about how crime was sort of like the existential threat to americans in this post cold war world. And I think this movie plays in that space a little bit from the other perspective. It sort of sees the war on crime and the aggressive policing of, you know, this uh, Canadian police force and, and, and what they represent as being destructive. You know, it's focused on sort of how that attitude was prejudiced against social minorities and economic minorities and, um, depressed populations. So I, I think that is there and is definitely a theme to, to watch because this is not overtly a movie about crime. And yet we get the scene of Boone in the prison with the sheriff beating him and telling him to get out of town because they don't want that kind of person there. Yeah. I'd also say that the culture war is probably a big part of this movie. Like just the fact that the police are becoming like more and more militarized. And like, I mean, I know that the citizens of, what is it, Marwin? I can't... <laughs> Midian. But Midian is not a town. Midian is just the graveyard. The nearest okay. town is Sheerneck. All right. Uh, the, like, they're they're not actual citizens of whatever country they're in. I think they're in Canada. They they're in Canada. Calgary. We're watching domestic police officers executing humans, basically. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. And the culture wars were a big thing in the 90s, like, just conservative versus liberal all that stuff and i feel like that probably plays in here a little i bit. mean it's very easy to read the movie that way just given the way that the characters are coded and presented where you've got like this commune of sexually adventurous and taboo breaking people up against police and religious figures and the police are part of an organization called the sons of freedom it's very easy to see that that bifurcation between right and left begin to play out. I also just think, you know, we've, we've hammered it a lot in this movie, but the fact that this is 
a pretty ultra gay movie, even without saying it explicitly, I think is something that he could Barker couldn't have done even a decade earlier. They were starting to push boundaries in subtext, not in text, but it was there. And we'll actually see that come up again in some of the later films we're watching, like some of the documentaries that we're doing later in the season. Cool. Anything else? I suppose not. I just, again, I, I love this movie, almost in spite of myself. I watch it and I see all its flaws and I can't help but forgive the movie for them because what I love is just so much fun and so interesting and I just want to sink my teeth into it and debate it and discuss it and I hope our listeners will join in with me on that. As someone who just saw it for the first time, I think it's worth checking out just because of the cool costume designs and all the wacky, crazy stuff that comes along in this movie. It's so much fun to just, like you said, sink your teeth into it. I wouldn't say it's the most thoroughly entertaining movie or the most intellectually stimulating movie or performance-wise, it's pretty terrible. Um, but it just brought me back to being a 10-year-old kid and like going through haunted houses and... <laughs> being impressed and scared simultaneously so check it out cool well i suppose then it's time to sign off so this is ben and this is nat uh wishing y'all a good night and hey by the way get your old three-part back to the future dvds ready because you're gonna want to watch the full trilogy oh it's namesake time (laughs) it's namesake time baby dust them off watch part one watch part two and then watch Part 3, 1990.